Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Hope you guys are doing well. If you are uh, new with us, my name's Landon, and I, uh, I'm thankful to be one of the team members here with Restoration Church, and uh, I think we're on our fifth week in a, a series we're calling Faithful Citizenship. We'll continue that this morning in uh, the books of Jeremiah and Revelation and a little bit of Isaiah, so if you want to pick one of those three... And guess which one we'll start in. Good luck. Uh, Before that, I'm going to reverse things just a little bit today. Normally, we'd kind of walk through the why of a teaching, why what we're talking about matters, and then get to like the how to do it, what to do, that kind of thing, perhaps. I'm going to start this morning off with some of the tangible, practical steps you might be able to take for today's topic, which is this. We are called, biblically speaking, by God to seek the welfare of the community around us. Friends, enemies, neighbors, people on the left, right, everywhere in between, we are called to love. And so we're gonna spend time talking about why we're called to that, maybe what keeps us from it. But I'm gonna start this morning uh, by providing two options of how you might step into that. So I wanna go ahead and invite Linda Gray up and then Jared and Ty as well. Linda was a uh, state senator here in the state of Arizona. She was out in the lobby um, at a voter registration table when you came in on the right, if you noticed her. And as we talk about ways to seek what is best for our community, one of the ways to do so is to vote. And so if you haven't registered, we wanna provide that opportunity. I did not say vote this way or that way or left or right or conservative or Republican or liberal, Democrat. I don't care about that. That's not what I'm here to convey. What I'm here to convey is that through prayer, seeking the wisdom of our God, we're supposed to look at other people through the lens of love and ask the question, what is best for our neighbor? What is good? What is healthy? And we have a voice to begin to seek that out through our vote. And the people to your left or to your right, they might think what is best is different. That's okay, that's not the point. But what we are called to do is be involved in the midst of our communities. You might think, hey, that doesn't matter at all, maybe on a scale of presidential elections or the largest of these types of votes and moments, you could possibly make that argument. But on a local level, that's where I think we have so much potential. Do you know the city council members here locally? Do you know the people that are on the school board? You have an impact to uh, influence today in the midst of the people sitting in this room, your neighbors, where we shop, where we eat, those people's lives and stories. And so we want to encourage you to do that as we seek Jesus together. Uh, We had the opportunity, Linda, to to communicate a little bit, share Mm -hmm. uh, some of your history and your passion for this and why you wanted to make this available. But I loved one of the stories you shared that really tied into last week and our topic of humble resistance and even how to journey through these gray areas. I'd love for you to, to share. Very true. So when I was in the Senate, Gabby Giffords was serving and she resigned to run for Congress. Her replacement was a lady named Paula. And I read through Paula's bio and saw we had a number of things, such as coaching and education, that uh, we had very much in common. So I went to her office and got to know her and built a relationship with her. Now, we were on opposite sides, party-wise, but there were so many things we had in common. 
But there was a great divide in the legislature when we voted to put the marriage amendment on the ballot. Paula voted no, and I knew that because she was gay. I knew that from the beginning when I built a relationship with her, and I voted no, or I voted yes to send it to the voters. So because of that relationship, when Gabby was shot and the legislature came into session for opening session, Paula's party said, we're not introducing our guests for first day of session. And she came to me and said, Linda, would you introduce my guest? Of course I would. And so because of that, she then went to her leadership and asked, can I sit next to Linda on the floor? And so we would have great discussions there between parties. But the sum of this is, we are to love our neighbors. That when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, might, strength. And to love your neighbors as yourself. So without love, you're not able to build those relationships. And that's one of the most important things that we can do. Thank you. I think that's such a, a great example of how we can step into and through these gray moments that we absolutely need to step into. We can't be afraid of. We can't pretend don't exist. Jesus walked into things that were uncomfortable, and he calls us uh, to follow him there. And so as we continue to talk about ways that we can seek the welfare of our community tangibly, I've invited Ty and Jared up. They help, are the two of the four people that help lead our, our cultivation team. And the, the way I'll kind of frame it for you is this. So often what happens is a church might have a list of things you can go do. Um, they're kind of generic. You can probably think of what they are. They don't require a lot of creativity or thought from you. They're quick and easy, and you can kind of put your, your check mark in and say, hey, I went and did a good thing. And, and it is genuinely a good thing. What excites me more than that, though, just checking your box to say, hey, I went and served, is that we press into the complexity and brilliance of how Jesus created you. Every one of you, as you sit in a chair, you have your own story with your own brokenness and, and beauty and gifting and resources and talents and eyes to see things that the person next to you might not. And so as uh, the cultivation team presses into that, our hope is that we can move into some more long-term, sustainable opportunities within our community based on who you are uniquely as God created you and uh, the needs of organizations within our community. And so I'll let Ty and Jared share. <laughs> we always laugh because Landon pretty much covers everything we need to say, and then we just come up and repeat it in, in additional words. Um, Last service, you guys said you were the good-looking part of the team, so that's why I brought you up here according oh, to you. Well, we lied time. a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but if you come to the table, you'll see more of the good-looking part of the team, and it won't just be us. Anyway, um, cultivation, let me start there. It's kind of an awkward term, kind of a unique term, so let me define it for you. Cultivation is defined as to improve by labor, care, or study. Also, it's further described as further encourage or foster growth. That's why we call this the cultivation team. It's our hope and desire that we will be cultivating the soil in God's creation. And we have that role to play. I'd like Jared to share a little bit about some of what people we visit with and our intent. Yeah, the purpose of this really is to give you guys an opportunity 
to serve Jesus in our communities, right? And like, what does that actually look like? And we can best know that by knowing your story. And so if you are interested in the cultivation team, like it is, it is us going through a process of really learning your story and pulling out your strengths out of that. And then once we know what those strengths are, we can know where to kind of plug you into these different communities that, that need Jesus, right? Ultimately, our community needs Jesus. And so that's what I kind of focus on is being out there and knowing what agencies are out there that need people for volunteers. What does it look like to, you know, time commitment, application, all that. But we help do that for you so that it's more seamless and gives you an opportunity just to like jump in and start serving. Great. So as a slight recap, there's two things going on. There's two stories here that really make up a bigger story. So the one is the stories of these organizations. You can learn a little bit about different ones and the opportunities they have. And secondly, we get to get to know your story. And that's all the relationships. So when we combine those two stories, we can see how God wants to use us to cultivate his creation for what one day will be restored. So we look forward to meeting you. We'll be back under the mural. Sarah's back there now, part of the better looking part of the cultivation team. Um, but Jared and I will be there too. So come see us. We'd love to get to know you. We'll fill you in a little bit. We'll let you know what the next steps are. Uh, thanks for the time. Thank you. All right. Um, yeah, spent time with both of them after the, uh, the gathering. One of the, the questions that I often hear posed either by me or to me in, in church circles, and I've discussed this with our, our trellis core of our, our church as well, is if our church or any church ceased to exist tomorrow, would the community around us care at all? And I think as most churches and leadership, or if you're an involved member, whoops, of the, the church, you might think, well, yeah, of course. And I don't know if that's true. If you take out the members that belong to that church, maybe some missions organization or a few specific people that have not profited but benefited in some way from that church organization, would the rest of the community actually care? I don't think the answer is a resounding yes. In fact, I would say oftentimes the answer might be no. There's probably a number of churches that neighbors wish weren't there. And I think it's something for us to process. What would it look like to be a part of a church that the community around would deeply miss if it was gone? I think the, the key to that happening would be a situation where our emphasis is not what happens on uh, this property or within these walls. It wouldn't merely be spiritual and the songs we sing, though they matter, Nate, could not be more right. There's something so powerful and beautiful about sharing this time. There's something uh, important about studying the scriptures together and being together, not giving up gathering. It's biblical. But for this shift to take place, for a community to miss a church they don't belong to, we really have to embrace and grasp our identity as the church. Not a people that go to church or do something, but the people that are the church. A family, a community of people following Jesus together in the midst of the everyday stuff of life. All of a sudden then, you can imagine a world where a neighbor would be devastated because their neighbor, who is the church, is no longer there. And that's the neighbor that cared the deepest about them. It's the neighbor whose kids were responsible enough to water the plants and feed the dog while they were gone on vacation. It's the employer who changed somebody's life because it wasn't just about the bottom line and the next steps. They cared about people. It's a teacher 
who believed in a student when no one else would or a coach who did that for an athlete. It's a restaurant that created an incredible environment and had the best cuisine, and that's your favorite place for date night that no longer existed, but it was somebody in the church that created and cultivated and creatively put together that spot. It's a variety of different things that we as Christians are called to, not merely spiritual, not people merely getting saved, but bringing what we just saying, you are good to life tangibly for the community around us. It's a possibility. It isn't something that I would say is necessarily a reality, but it's something worth striving towards. Jeremiah 29 verse 4 says this, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles, his people, his family, that I, God, deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Notice the first command here has to do with the physical, not the spiritual. Take wives and have sons and daughters, now relational. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Verse seven, seek the welfare, seek the good of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. Daniel and his friends, these exiles, were called by God to love everyone around them. Friends, enemies, people that had entirely different political ideologies, value systems, they were called to seek what was good for them. We too, in our moments in this culture, in this country, state, and city, are called to seek what is in the best interest, called to love those around us, Christian and not. That's a pretty simple, clear command. As Linda said, Jesus echoed this very clearly when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, with all of you. And then he added, because we forget this part, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would then go on to explain who your neighbor is, and it surprised everybody because it included enemies. It included those who were very different. That's our call. I love that the first step in it is this, though. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. When's the the last time that when you drove down your street and went to pull into your driveway or garage or you took your dog on a, a walk in your neighborhood that you prayed for the people that live in those homes? People who breathe real breaths and have actual stories and lives and broken moments and beautiful moments. How many of their names do we know? The people that live near us or next to us. When's the last time you prayed for them? Do you have a, a restaurant that you frequent or a bank or a grocery store and you see the same people again and again? When, have, when was the last time you stopped to pray for them to God on their behalf or a business or an organization Or maybe a school, maybe your kids go there, maybe they don't. Maybe you even can look up on their website who the staff is and pray for them by name. When is the last time that happens? If you are in a group or something, you might hear about prayer requests. Almost always we pray and make requests for things we want or need or things that our loved ones want or need. But when is the last time it was focused on the behalf, seeking the welfare of the people God has placed us intentionally around? I'm not very good at that. I think it'd be appropriate 
maybe this morning to not just live in the theoretical, but to stop and just do that now. I'm going to give us a few minutes. You can pray with someone next to you, pray on your own, circle up, do whatever you want. I'd encourage you, though, to think about someone or something or a place or an organization that you frequent. could be the Brown House, three houses down, the restaurant, whatever it is. If you know somebody with a certain hair color or a family or whatever it is, think of someone specific and just spend time now praying for them. This isn't necessarily going to change everything, but hopefully just a small little practice to stop now and seek the welfare of others in prayer sparks a habit, sparks a pattern, begins to shift how we think. Go ahead and spend just a couple moments in prayer now. Father, as we sing, you are good. May you fill us with the knowledge and experience of your goodness and allow it to overflow from us to those you've placed us near and around and in relationship. May you be known. May your love be experienced. In Jesus' name, amen. The scriptures are very clear that we are called to seek the welfare of everybody around us. Whether we like them or not, love them already or don't, that is the call. And so as I processed this call for us in the context of this practice of seeking to be both faithful citizens of King Jesus and faithful citizens of our city, state, and country, I started the process more, if that's a simple command, which I think it is, why do we not? And came up with four things, four reasons why I think we are hindered from seeking the welfare of the community around us. And so um, as briefly as I can, I'll, I'll go through each of these. Number one is we do not have ears to hear. We don't have ears to hear the call that God has placed on our lives to love the people that he has placed us around and put us in relationship with. The, the exiles struggled with this as well, but for an interesting reason. If we look at chapter 29, verse 8, we read this. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. 
And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. There's all kinds of teachings and books that say this. Take care of yourself. Back in the day, a long history, very, very, very far away from this moment, you would walk in a bookstore and there would be a self-help section. And it was by far the biggest self, or the, by far the biggest section in the entire bookstore or library because we love to help ourselves. We have no issue doing that. It is profitable for people to write books about how you can uh, help yourself because we buy them. We want to help ourselves, we buy things for ourselves, we think about ourselves, we dream about our opportunities, our own fears. We have this gravitational pull of focus about us. Often in the name of Jesus, too. Instead of looking at the way of Jesus and asking Jesus to change how we see and who we see. So just our opportunities or the opportunities of others. Instead of beginning to listen to the stories around us, instead of just telling our own story and feeling the needs we have, transitioning that to feel and have empathy and begin to understand what life is like for someone else. One of the foundational reasons I think we don't seek the welfare of the community around us is because we don't have ears to hear, maybe because we've been taught something incorrectly. The other potential is because we are so busy in life, we don't have time to hear. We're so busily shuttling ourselves and for me, at this point, my kids, from activity to activity, thing to thing, pursuing opportunities. Oftentimes, it's actually framed as poor stewardship. If you don't embrace this economic opportunity or that one or this moment for whatever's ahead of you, that's just God probably provided this moment, so you should step into it. And we go scattered and anxious from one thing to the next, building our own world. And we don't have ears to hear eyes to see or heart to feel something or someone else other than what is our own. I think that's something for us to process. I think it's something for us to pray about. We talked about it a few weeks ago, that God will give us thick skin, but soft hearts. Not thick hearts with soft skin. Not easily offended, but quick to love. It's a call that we need Jesus to change our hearts. I don't think we're capable of it on our own, which leads us to the next potential reason or hindrance from seeking the welfare of the community around us. We hear the call, but we do not actually want what is good and best for those that are different than us or those that are other than us. Uh, another way to, to put this would be that we have the heart of Jonah or a heart like Jonah. Jonah, if you're not familiar, was a prophet and God called him to go speak to a, a nation, a people, a really violent, terrible people. And Jonah said, I hear you, but no thanks. He got in a ship and went as far away as possible from where God was sending him. But eventually God did what God does and he got a hold of Jonah. And so Jonah went where he was supposed to go and very reluctantly and bitterly shared the gospel and the good news that there's an incredible God that would love even them, this terrible people. And then something miraculous happened. They listened and they began to worship him and they began to stop killing babies and each other and, and quit being racist and all of these terrible things in Nineveh that were happening. And everyone would think that would be beautiful news, except there's Jonah and he's furious that these people began to worship God because he did not want what was actually good for them. And I think more often than we would like to admit 
The only difference between Jonah and us is that he might be more honest. I think sometimes we just aren't honest about who we actually care for, who we love, who we want, what is good for. Do we have the heart of Jonah? And I think it's important to clarify here, I don't believe we can change our own hearts. If you find yourself in a place where you're questioning if your heart is thick and your skin is thin, you can't change that, but the spirit can. And so we can pray and ask God to work and shift and transform us from the inside out because we are one with Christ. We hear the call, but we don't want his best for those who are different than us. Alan Noble puts it this way. We may end up like Jonah if we are not careful. Jonah hoped for the wrong thing. He had seen the violence and evil committed by the Ninevites against the people of Israel and hoped that they would not repent and that God would destroy Nineveh. When God instead brought about the repentance of the Ninevites, Jonah became bitter. Even after the miraculous repentance of an entire city, he could not imagine God's plan as good. If we insist that our society be fixed through a specific political or social agenda, we may grow bitter when God righteously chooses to bring redemption in a way we could never have imagined. Jonah could not save Nineveh. He couldn't even love it. Neither could Jonah bring about God's judgment upon Nineveh. What he could do in response to the wickedness of Nineveh and what we must do in response to the inhuman conditions of our society is represent God in the city. Give a glimpse of his way and love and goodness, not just by how we speak or our spirituality, but by how we live in the everyday stuff of life. Two reasons. We don't have ears to hear, number one. Number two, we hear the call, but we don't actually want what is good for those that are different or other than us. Number three, this is perhaps gonna be the hardest one. We don't seek the welfare of the community around us because we believe it's all just going to burn anyway. So none of what we do in the here and now matters. This might feel like somewhat of a curveball, but as I really processed, one of the reasons that we're not seeking the welfare of the community around us, I think this might actually be the primary one. This is going to be a little bit challenging, so hang with me because we're going to look at a lot of tradition, a lot of what you've probably assumed is true in the scriptures from church, and we're going to question some of those things, so bear with me for a moment. Uh, We're going to start by doing something really weird. Go ahead and close your eyes if you're brave enough. No one's going to hit you or slap you or anything weird. What I want you to do is imagine for about 15 seconds, try to create a picture of heaven. Go ahead and and do that now. Close your eyes. Picture heaven. What do you see? What kind of colors are there? What do you hear? Who is there? What type of things are happening? What's going on? Think about that for another five to, to ten seconds. Imagining, picturing, painting a picture of heaven. All right, go ahead and... Now, let that image pass away and instead spend another 15 or so seconds picturing hell. Same thing. Eyes closed. Just come up with your idea of what hell is. What do you see? What activities are happening? Who or what is there? What do you smell? What do you feel? Spend another 10 or so seconds picturing hell in your mind. Okay, 
open your eyes, tell me, or don't tell me, but is this somewhat of a reflection of perhaps what you saw heaven being like, let's go to the next one. There's a lot of rays of sun coming through clouds. You see angels floating. I imagine that's like a choir and they're singing. There's brightness. It's lofty. It's in the air somewhere. Heaven. Now let's go to hell. It's burning, sulfur, bloody, ugly, not a place you want to be. Think for a second if some of those images resonated, not that you came up with those exact images, but was it something like that? Was it influenced by this? Those images came from Dante's Divine Comedy written in the 1300s. It's a a poem, actually, this poetry that illustrated his ideas of heaven and hell and purgatory. And the argument can actually be made fairly easily that for you and I today, especially if you grew up in the church, your concept, your picture, your understanding of both hell and heaven are probably more influenced by Dante's poetry and Plato's philosophy than the scriptures. What has actually happened over now really almost a a thousand years is that we read these words, a combination of letters, right? H-E-A-V-E-N, heaven in English, in your Bible, that was translated from a language that was not English and a culture that was not English, and the letters for H-E-L-L, hell. And when we see them on our page, we have an idea that looks somewhat like what you saw. Not exactly, but the concept of it in kids' cartoons and other movies comes primarily from Plato's philosophy and Dante's concept of these, uh, these places. Even the idea of these being places probably come from places other than the scriptures. And it's been framed as if they're biblical. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible does talk um, quite sufficiently about both heaven and hell. But it's very possible, I would make the argument likely, that you've been influenced less by the scriptures than by other literature and how you understand heaven and hell. N.T. Wright, in his book, uh, Surprised by Hope, referring to the hope we have as Christians, uh, says this. It comes as something of a shock, in fact, when people are told what is, in fact, the case, that there is very little in the Bible about going to heaven when you die, and not a lot about a post-mortem hell either. The medieval pictures of heaven and hell boosted, though not created, by Dante's classic work have exercised a huge influence on Western Christian imagination. Many Christians grow up assuming that whenever the New Testament speaks of heaven, it refers to the place to which the saved will go after death. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus' sayings and the other gospels about the kingdom of God are rendered as kingdom of heaven. Since many read Matthew first, the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, when they find Jesus talking about entering the kingdom of heaven, they have their assumptions confirmed and suppose that he is indeed talking about how to go to heaven when you die, which is certainly not what either Jesus or Matthew had in mind. Many mental pictures have grown up around this and are now assumed to be what the Bible teaches or what Christians believe. We hear the word heaven, but there's something unique about the word heaven in the scriptures. Almost every single time you see heaven in the New Testament, it is paired with the word kingdom, meaning domain of a king, and that king is Jesus. Heaven will be where Jesus is. Heaven is not a place. Heaven is proximity to a person. Where Jesus is, 
heaven is. It's not somewhere we fly away to. You read through the, the Gospels yourselves, or really the entirety of the Scriptures, you almost never find any place that talks about heaven outside of kingdom, outside of authority and the influence of our God. And the, the same book, N.T. Wright continues, the language of heaven in the New Testament doesn't work that way. God's kingdom and the preaching of Jesus refers not to post-mortem destiny, not to our escape from this world into another one, but to God's sovereign rule coming on earth as it is in heaven. The roots of the very misunderstanding go very deep, not least into the residual Platonism that has infected whole swaths of Christian thinking and has misled people into supposing that Christians are meant to devalue this present world, this is key, and our present bodies and regard them as shabby or shameful. Now think with me for just a moment. If our bodies in the physical world don't bear much relevance because one day they will just burn, then why would we put much effort, time, energy, gifting, let alone money into helping those around us with something that's just going to burn eventually anyway, with something that God himself has not valued or thinks is good. That would make sense. Instead, what we would do is just focus on salvation, evangelism, people getting saved so they can go to this other quote-unquote heavenly place. But really, that would be arguing with God. I love Genesis 1 and 2. It's so beautiful. Back to poetry. In the beginning, God created, and he said, it is good. And then he created another part of earth in this world, and he said, it is good. And like eight more times, I forget the actual number, he created and declared, it is good. Do you know what he did not say? Oh, wow, I really blew it and messed up. Next time I create the world, I think I'll do better. I'm just going to kind of scrap this whole model and try a new one, and it's going to be better the next time. That's not what God said. He gave us freedom in that, and sin entered. But what he's promised to do is really based on the name of our church, restoration, to restore. Not to start completely new, but to refine and renew what was already good, to rid it of the impurities, to heal it from brokenness to beautiful. All of a sudden, that will begin to change how we understand the physical world. Values not just in the spiritual, it's in all of life. We shouldn't put Jesus in such a small box and say he's the king of salvation. He's the king of the spiritual in our prayer lives. He's the king of everything. He's the one that created it and made it good. In the, the book of Isaiah, we receive a lot of kind of this imagery of the end. We read this in Isaiah. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the youth will die at a hundred years and the one who misses a hundred years will be cursed. People will build houses and live in them physical. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit, physical. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. If you're familiar with Genesis 3, the third uh, chapter in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, there's this curse. And God says, now children will be bared in pain, and the toil of the land will be brutal and not as fruitful. And this is this reversal of it in the end. For they will be a people blessed, not cursed, by the Lord along with their descendants. Even before they call, God says, I will answer. When they are still speaking, I will hear. 
The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 60, he's still painting a picture of revelation, and I want to put that up for you, some segments from Isaiah 60, where we read, again, a very uh, kind of interesting depiction of heaven, of the end here. We read this in verse 7, verse 6. There we go. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Epah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of cedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall be acceptable on my altar, and I will glorify my glorious house. Verse 9, for the coastland shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from far away, their silver and gold with them, for the name of Yahweh your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Your gates shall always be open, day and night they shall not be shut, so that the nations shall bring you their wealth with their kings led in procession. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify where my feet rest. Hear this, human hands will make ships that sail on the sea with sails that catch wind and move that were designed by human intelligence and creativity. There will be different types of lumber to create different types of structures. There will be creativity and art and music and a physical world, gold and all these other resources that were listed will be present. It's not just the spiritual, eternal, boring church gathering. I said this a year or two ago, but I remember being a kid and being seven years old in a pew and it was a freezing cold place so that I'd think you wouldn't fall asleep and we're singing, I could sing of your love forever again and again and again. And so my idea of heaven was that it was not fire, it was freezing, and we just sang that same song forever. And I was terrified of heaven as a result of this. But that's the image we probably grew up with when we detach what God declared as good, not man, what God declared as good, which is physical. Throughout the scriptures, it's this restoration of Genesis 1 and 2, this curse in Genesis 3, Isaiah and Revelation undo it to say all will be made well. Not all will be burned. Now, bear with me a second. There is reference to that. There is reference to a fire and a burning, but it's a refining fire. It's the type that rids a metal of its impurities and beats them out so that nothing but the best product is left. If you look at our world today, you walk down the street, you go into any home on planet Earth, have a conversation with any human on our planet that is breathing, you will find both brokenness and beauty. There's both in every single situation. There's impurities and selfish ambition and pride and things that harm self and others. And then there's good and brilliance and creativity. And in the end, there will be this fire of sorts that purifies, that heals, that restores, so that only the good and right and pure remains. Speaking of this passage in Isaiah, John Mark Comer in his book, Garden City, uh, references this, this idea. If we can go ahead and pull that up. He says this. This is because contrary to the popular saying, heaven is not our home. Earth is. Not earth as it is now, but earth as it will be in the future. Our hope isn't for another place, but another time. 
Yes, as followers of Jesus, we go to heaven when we die, but we don't stay there. If Jesus is a ticket to heaven, as the preacher says, then he's a round-trip ticket, not a one-way, because at the, at the resurrection, we come back. And this new world that we come back to is never once called heaven by any of the biblical authors. Jesus called it the renewal of all things. Paul called it the kingdom of God and eternal life. Peter called it the time for God to restore everything. Then later, he reused the language of the prophet Isaiah and said, in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. One more passage, Revelation 21. I'll begin to read in verse three. Prophet John says this, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling, his sanctuary, his temple is with humanity and he will live with them like in the garden. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, God like in the garden. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away, like Isaiah said. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. I'm gonna skip to, to verse 10. He then carried me away from carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. This is key. Coming down out of heaven from God. The end picture, the end to end, there's a whole lot that happens in between. The end to end is the city coming down, not us flying away, oh glory, forever. The city coming down. Why? Because God didn't mess up when he created the earth. He said it is good. And I don't know about you, but I get way more excited about that than flying in the clouds and singing forever, though I do like this. When I, when I think of heaven, for some reason, I always think about the subway system in New York City. Now, bear with me a second, because that might not make sense, but here's why. It blows my mind, the architecture, the engineering, both the system and logistics, but also the physical engineering of how you transport so many millions of people every single day under, I can't fathom the weight of that city, let alone under waterways. I mean how that was created, and it wasn't planned before the city. It was as it was happening. I mean, it blows my mind. Now, imagine for a minute if that was capable, if humans were capable of creating something that brilliant, truly, with sin ravaging our world, with cancer killing and selfish ambition causing all of us to seek what's best for us instead of the other. Can you imagine what humans who were created as co-creators to be like God, made in his image, will be capable of one day when sin is no more? I start to think of that canvas. I start to think of some of you and some people in this world that are unbelievable creators and builders and creatives and thinkers and doers. And what heaven will be like is all the good in this world, rid of all the bad and ugly and harmful. And I go, that's pretty compelling. That's pretty exciting. And so our job then, as the church, and this is where that shift comes into play, I think. If a church is to be missed by its community, not just its members, we have to start to bring that good to our neighbors. That good to our schools, that good, to our businesses and our streets, to our governments, not because we're right, not because we know everything, but because he is good. And we can do that. 
We can give them a glimpse, a foretaste, a picture, just like a movie preview or trailer of what is coming. But we can give that today, though Jesus will fulfill it one day later. Andy Crouch says it this way. We don't need to put it up on the the screen, but he says, the works of today are, in essence, the furniture of heaven tomorrow. I love that. You're furnishing heaven by what you do, your work, physically, relationally, emotionally, tangibly, and yes, spiritually too, but it lasts. It does not all burn away. It gets purified and remade and restored, like a car that's not worth destroying, an old classic that, that needs work and repair and the engine to be improved upon, and all of a sudden the value is even greater. That's what we get the image of. I think a misunderstanding of the end, a devaluing of what God himself declared as good, is one of the main reasons we don't seek the welfare of the community around us because we're arguing with God about what is good and what is not. Never once did God say the spiritual matters most, ignore everything else. He declared all good. So we should value it that way as well. Lastly, and then I'll wrap up, uh, we covered three reasons why we don't seek the welfare of the community around us. The last one, I believe, is we don't realize how much we have to offer as individuals and communally. Not just money and time, but God made every single one of you uniquely gifted and talented. You see things different than the person to your left or to your right because God made you unique and brilliantly. The scriptures say it. And so if you don't believe that you have those things to offer, Satan's probably got in your mind to convince you of that. Why? Because he doesn't want you to bring good to the world in the name of Jesus. But you have so much to offer. Each of us differently. I shared with the, uh, the last gathering, I almost didn't pass kindergarten because I could barely write my name. That's a long time ago. I can still barely write my name but I have some other things to offer. I can't build anything or fix anything to save my life. My six-year-old son's already better than, than me at that. But I have some other things to offer. Unique perspectives, ideas. You have your own unique gifting, resourcing, way you hear and see and feel. And if as a church, we can shift from that being inward focused to outward focused. Side note, that does not mean you don't care for yourself. That would be a myth. Jesus cared enough about you to give up his own life. That expresses your value at a pretty high level. We're not called to never care about ourselves. You're valuable. God wants you to. But that comes secondarily because we've been shown how much we are cared for by him. That's why I wanted to have the opportunity for the voter registration. I really wanted to have the opportunity for the cultivation team in the corner under the mural of Prescott to go. As I look at those pathways and roads on that wall, go there. Go to those places, live this out, bring that good. May we be a people that can really transform how the church is seen, not as a building, not as spiritual, but as a group of normal people that mess up, but repent, that humbly resist, and that give the good of life because we believe our God made it well. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, you are so good. Take off the the blinders from us to see that so that we can experience and know and worship you as the only creator of all that is good, that we can enjoy it and then in turn give it and build it and cultivate it. God, take out the clogging in our ears that keeps us from hearing the cries and questions and confusions of our neighbors, of the people you've placed us around. Help us to care. Help us to let go of things that we shouldn't be concerned with or care about. 
prioritize our priorities, our passions. May you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.